Apart from their lineage as the first of their kind, little is known about the Legionis Astartes known as the Dark Angels. Their origins, as well as those of all space marines, is a topic that had been hidden away in the waning days of the Emperor's Imperium. A fact we do know from Book Nine Crusade is that of all the legions of post-human warriors, the Dark Angels were conceived by the Emperor as a template for those that would follow, distilled from the gene code of the most stable of all his Primarchs, and without any attempt to foster specific traits or the eccentricities of the stock from which they sprang. It is believed that this process and experimentation began over a hundred years before the end of the Unity Wars. The records that reference initial test subjects of these proto-Astartes was titled The Primordial Strain. These documents tell us that nearly all who began initial combat trials and surgical testing did not survive. Those who did, however, formed the basis of the initial cultures of the Dark Angels, and as processes were refined, the other legions as well. These experiments required untainted human subjects and included other parameters such as age and physical fitness. The state of Terra at that time, effectively an atomic wasteland, made this extremely difficult. The territories controlled by the Emperor were greatly affected by the outflow of their able-bodied citizens. Starting with the youth of foes defeated and slaves purchased by nomadic clans, flesh tithes became more common in territories claimed by the Imperium. As such, the first recruits share no single culture and brought a vast variety of martial traditions from the brutal Coda of Albia, Scandia Berserkers, Warriors of the Analotic Steppes, and over a dozen more societies' own arts of war. The refined knowledge of the crucible of war that was Terra after Old Night. The proto-warriors were encouraged to disown their old names and embrace a new brotherhood and take names of heroes of ancient Terra, Gilgamesh, Heracles, Tarkon, Hengst, and others. With this, and their grim aspect, a reputation was created amongst the rest of the Imperial Army at the time as a pantheon of gods, all from the same mold. They would be known as the Uncrowned Princes, or simply, the Crowns. So good. The Dark Angels, the First Legion, the Primordial Strain, I have some thoughts, but we we talked a little bit about this before we came on, and uh, I think we need to do a spoiler alert for our listeners. If you haven't read Saturday Night, please walk away for a solid, what do you think, five minutes? Yeah, it's not going to spoil Saturday Night's plot, but it will give away a pretty big reveal, and there's a little bit of, I mean... There's a little bit of Sons of the Selenar. There's a little bit of um, there's a little bit of sprinkled in, you know, lore here and there that is still, I think, within a year. So um, yeah, so I, I definitely want to talk about the primordial strain a little bit more. But if you guys are not up to date on sort of the current Black Library lore, uh, yeah, maybe cover your ears for five minutes. Good? Yep. Okay. Let's go for it. So backwards logic on this, guys, right? Proto-Astartes. Um, the Emperor experimented on Thunder Warriors. The experiment fell apart. But before you can get to Astartes, before you can get to, like, genuine Legionis Astartes, right? 
first legion, second legion, third legion, fourth legion, you have to have what? What what gene stock do you have have to have mixed with that? Do you have to have primarchs, right? You have to have primarchs. Primarchs come first, but before you can have primarchs, you have to have the concept. So you have to have the proto-astartes. We touched on this a little bit last episode uh, with Abraxas of Ghent from the first Ghent intake. So, you know, adding to the lore of sort of early unification. So you have to have the proof that you can build a template, a genetic template that's superior to the Thunder Warriors, but without like warp magic right because that was the that was the faustian bargain that the emperor made to create the primarchs and so we've been play black library forge world has been playing around with this this idea of what's in between a space marine and a primarch right i think a lot of people just sort of you know because we're humans and we put things in boxes are like okay there's Space Marines and there's Primarchs and there's nothing in between. Primarchs are vastly superior in a category of their own. Space Marines are sort of genetically constructed to be super warriors, but then there's no in between, but there actually is quite a bit of in between. Um, the, the primordial strain was alluded to in Saturnine sort of reinforced here in Book Nine Crusade, it is the genetic combination of two uh, perpetuals. The first perpetual is the emperor, of course, the most powerful perpetual. The second perpetual is uh, the mother, um, who is introduced in Saturnine. I won't spoil any more of that. But uh, those two perpetuals, their genetic strain without warp magic and shenaniganry creates the primordial strain. And you do get something that is beyond what a normal Astartes is, right? So we, we know that from Abraxas of Ghent. We know that from LE2 or Li2 uh, in Saturnine. These are proto-Astartes that did not fail and and exist i think on a level that is vastly superior to a normal uh space marine but still sort of an order below what a primarch uh would be um but obviously not warp tainted and uh i, I just i love that i love that they're playing around with this idea in this space that exists between sort of primarchs and space marines i think that's really cool so pat i you've read some of the new lore right so you know about alpha primus yeah yeah um you're talking about like primaris lore the in between uh between i guess what is what was i guess current gen space marine to uh primaris right so yeah so, so that so yeah. you're then applying that um, LE2 and Abraxas are, would you say they're on the same plane as, or would you say Alpha Primus and them are on the same plane, or would you say Alpha Primus is... is no, he's something higher. else. Yeah, I mean, some... he is something else, because he yeah. can... 
psychic, etc. Yeah. Right? Call did some crazy shit. But I think that it does indicate there's this idea that the authors, you know, um, are are tr- are playing around with this idea of what's possible in between a space marine and a primarch, right? Obviously, uh, Rubute Gilliman is the only primarch left alive in the 41st millennium. Um, but I think it was really, I think it, I love the just sort of the deep dive, right? It always sends you down the rabbit hole when we talk about this kind of stuff. So, so. At, that, at that point, we had the proto-Astartes, we had the Astartes, we had the primarchs. How do we fit the custodies in there? I know they're in some ways a league of their own, but where would you wedge the custodians as part of uh, between yeah. Primarchs and Proto Astartes? No, I, I think so. What we know from Valdor, which was one of the other books that I sort of alluded to, and you know, quote unquote, spoiler alert, Jesse, mm-hmm. you've read Valdor. I mm-hmm. don't know, Pat and Jason, if you guys have gotten through it. Um, but I think we know that the custodies are completely separate. They're created on a, a, a different level, at least as far as we know. Um, they're only created by the emperor. Uh, oh. They're not... Special batch. Right. <laughs> where, yeah. where your run-of-the-mill legionnaire is, mass produ- is easily mass-produced, you know, someone like Valdor or any of the other um, custodians was was specifically gene crafted, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they don't have the black carapace. Their organs are not removed. They don't go through the process of, you know, becoming a space marine. They're, they're literally genetically altered on a molecular level um, by the emperor. And so a part of the emperor is in a custodian, you know, custodies. So that's why they're they're incorruptible. That's why you can't turn, you can't corrupt uh, a custode because he is uh, he's a part of the emperor essentially. Um, I don't know, Jason. You probably have some ideas on this. Well, that was actually something that before Valdor and before. Oh, gosh. It was one of the Watchers of the Throne books. I think it was Carrion Throne. Uh, I was always curious because they never explicitly mentioned whether uh, custodians would interface with their armor in the same way Astartes would, you know, from like the little neural connections in the Black Carapace. And I was going down like two roads of thought with that. Either, you know, our custodians you know, so advanced that they don't need that connection with their armor or like in the other direction, it's like, how could they claim to be more superior than Astartes if they don't have that connection and that black carapace? Because wouldn't that be leaving something on the table? You know, like no matter how fast and strong a custodian is, if he had that interface between his armor and himself, would that not be, you know, that step better? Because that's the huge, one of the huge limiting factors for uh, unaugmented humans, like Adeptus Sororitas wearing power armor, is they don't have the same neural interface as the uh, Space Marines do. So even with like the 41st millennium version of motion muscular sensing technology, they can never be 
they can never have the power armor be like that second skin the way an Astartes could. But yeah, that's something I thought about for way too long so far as custodians go. I mean, in that in that same vein, Jason, you know, we we have plenty of inquisitors throughout the lore and throughout the black books, um, throughout the black library books in space Marine armor. And the description of them in it is that they're a hulking being, but they're still sluggish. You know? Right. So. That's one thing they always emphasized in the fluff, especially early on. I remember reading tons of stuff in third and fourth edition, how space Marines were so, uh, God, what do they call it? Uh, Dan Abnett even talked about it. Uh, it's called transhuman dread, as that space marines are terrifying to see because they're so enormous, but they're so much faster than something that big has any right to be, to the point that it literally was almost like a uh, otherworldly sort of Lovecraftian, you know, fear induced in unaugmented humans that fought them. And doubly so for a Primarch. Yeah. But I think to to Jason's point, though, which is a really good one, um, is that, and they play around with this, I think, in the current lore with the Primaris Marines, you know, love them, hate them, whatever. Uh, but, you know, Watchers of the Throne, um, the Chris Raid series that, uh, you know, they're continuing to build lore on, and even in, in the Dawn of Fire, there's instances of custodies who have lived for, you know, uh, nigh on millennia, right? Looking at the Primaris and going, hey, man, I, I mean, like, I could have taken Gen 1, but I don't know if I could take Gen 2, right? Like, there's that there's that sort of sizing up of the new Primaris and saying, saying you guys are, you guys are a step above and, you know, whatever call did... Um, to improve the neural interface, the black carapace, whatever, um, you know, put them in a put them in a category that maybe matches a custodian. I don't know, you know, but certainly there is that that dialogue that's been going on in the lore uh, that's I think really interesting to see because yeah, I mean maybe we're getting to the limit of you know what the custodians are are capable of, but. Well, comparatively, the custodians haven't really been improved in 10,000 years. I, I don't, I could be wrong about this, but I mean, it basically takes the hand of the emperor himself to create new custodians, does it not? Because I mean, if they haven't been improved in a good 10,000 years or so in this entire time, Call has been tinkering around with Primaris, it stands to reason that the Primaris are not only mass-produced like Astartes, but uh, oh, one thing they always talk about, um, like in First Heretic, they mention that custodians are incredibly powerful warriors individually, but they fundamentally lack that brotherhood and the pack tactics that Astartes have naturally sort of bred and trained into them as they go. So combining that like hyper effectiveness of a Primaris Marine, but not losing those pack tactics, I think would be a big deal. Yeah, I, I that's a question that I just don't think has been answered yet. Um, you know so I, how? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I I was just going to say I will ask any listeners um, 
who play custodies in 40k uh do a deep dive for us and look at your adeptus custodies codexes and see if they do talk about um the crafting of custodies because it it makes sense because they're the emperor's own warriors that he would have a direct hand in creating every single one but I think by this point, there has to be some type of process in place. Yeah, I'm willing to bet that custodians themselves, or probably like a select group of them, can probably potentially duplicate, if not recreate. There's got to be like yeah. a custodian apothecary or yeah. something out there. Like a Medicaid, Primus Medicaid kind of sort of situation, right? Now, before we take this any farther, damn sure better not have custodians getting feel no pain anytime soon. But outside of that or also the fact that they hadn't really left terra over the past ten thousand years too yeah they've essentially been camped out there may not have to worry about the uh regroup other than the you know at fight of the the city but i remember in book seven they taught there's at least a small section on custodians in there and I feel like I remember something about them because that was the point uh, people figured out that they essentially showed up with the emperor in the unification war. So I believe they touch a little bit on like their creation process, but it's been a really long time since I've read it and I'm going to have to go back and check it out again. Do we know that the creation timeline of whether or not the prototypes of Litu and Abraxas came before Custodes. I mean, we can kind of assume that just because... The the book mentions that the whole experimentation and such for the proto-Astartes was was roughly over 100 years before the end of the Unity Wars. Okay. So So I don't know at what point the, uh, the custodians came onto the field, but I have a feeling it was probably earlier than that, maybe? Or maybe it, it not. De- I don't, I don't no, know. it definitely was, Jesse. No, you're right. I mean, the Custodians were created alongside the, the Thunder Warriors. So, I mean, when we know that because Valder says that in, um, yeah, yeah he, he like he knows them. Um, he certainly knows their quote-unquote Primarchs, right? Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, the Custodians have been around for as long as the Thunder Warriors, which predates the proto astartes maybe not by much but like enough imagine winning that lottery oh boy you get to get part of the imperial army up oh, you're a thunder warrior yeah but this guy this guy over here he gets to be a custodian yeah the emperor wants that guy you'll be yeah. dead in a couple hundred years don't worry about it a team b team ah you know shirt skins you know <laughs> but if, I, I don't know if like if all the custodians had the same weaponry at that point or not but you feel like his custodians probably would have been able to handle quite a bit of everything. Like, I know when we compare custodians to Astartes and stuff, you think that the custodians themselves probably would have handled the bulk of the unity wars. Yeah. But I mean, it, it leads, that also leads back into the fact that they perform better individually than as a unit. True. Yeah. And I guess they're more technically, guardians of the emperor as opposed to foot soldiers and strike teams. Yeah. They were definitely guardians of the, like the 
the Imperial Palace, which was still being created at the time of the Unity Wars. So I think the Emperor did not send the custodians out on, you know, very many direct action missions. I mean, certainly they were involved, but like, there's this fascinating timeline, man, on the Unification Wars. And this is where I think this Crusade Book Nine really builds out some lore. I mean, we'll get into it over the next couple of pages here. Um, because there's some surprise, all custodians, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, there. I mean, there's you know, we continue to build out the chronology of uh early uh unification wars, the unity wars, um, in this book. So, I mean, we're gonna get to some dates inside of this, uh, I think even on the next next page, that as far as my research um, holds, the earliest dates yet uh, in the Unification Wars. So I think it's safe to say that, I mean, we had some proto-Astartes, um, quote-unquote, First Legion, operating uh, very early on. So that's going to be really cool to see. Yeah. I think with uh, that segue, I guess, do we want to move on to uh, to the next piece on 84? Sounds good. Yeah, as we were touching a little bit uh, before, so everybody knows by this point the First Legion is intended as this replacement for the Thunder Warriors. And this is, in large part, from the outside, it was because the Thunder Warriors were very unstable. They were not a tool to take over the galaxy. Uh, this is another thing they kind of touched on in First Heretic. Uh, they weren't a tool to take over the galaxy. They were a tool to bring Terra together so the Emperor had the resources he needs for that initial step. And they were useful for their time. And it was terrific for the time, but they kind of outlived the, the use that they had. So the emperor had planned them with almost this sort of intended obsolescence in a way that would that would kind of end up solving itself. So I know we're pretty heavy with uh, important spoilers this go round, but uh, The First Lord of the Imperium is a pretty great audio drama about Malkador dropping the bomb that the Emperor intended for the heresy to happen. And he intended for the legions to turn on one another and kind of wipe themselves out in this giant version of planned obsolescence, sort of in the same way as the Thunder Warriors. So there's been a lot of debate back and forth over, you know, unreliable narrator and what's going on and things like that. Something here, though, that kind of indicates to me that it was not planned in the same way and maybe not quite to the level of revisionist history, but I don't know, maybe Malkador trying to kind of sand over some of the emperor's rough edges uh the thunder warriors were 100 percent planned to become obsolete so even though he missed some of them in his purges 
uh, sort of in the same way that the big four original traitor legions, you know, purged their loyalist sympathizers, the Despawn Three. Uh, the Emperor purged most of the Thunder Warriors. And there are a couple of uh, pretty great stories. Uh, the Outcast Dead is a good one. Uh, Dreams of Unity is a good short story where you figure out what's happened to like the last half dozen or so Thunder Warriors. They're a little closer to uh, the Imperial Palace than one might think. But the Thunder Warriors here are genetically engineered to essentially fall apart after a time. And this is even, these are the ones kind of like a fail safe, even though the emperor knew, probably knew, he could not catch all of them in the initial purges and wiping them out after he was done with them. So Outcast Dad is really interesting in that a couple of the Thunder Warriors have essentially figured out a way albeit probably temporarily, to kind of extend their own shelf life, as it were. But that all feeds into the new tool that the emperors need. The emperor comes to need to conquer the rest of the galaxy. So this is even seen in the same way with the tools that the Astartes use compared to the Thunder Warriors. Uh, the Thunder Warriors, original version of Mark I power armor, it was not environmentally sealed. It wasn't even fully powered. Uh, it was just essentially a modified grappling suit. Uh, I mean, dudes had a bike helmet and some aviators on, if you look at the old artwork. Let's be honest. Oh, yeah. It was, it was hardcore, like 80 shades all day, every day. And we all know the goggles do nothing. Uh, to the rest of the armor <laughs> comparatively did not do as much anywhere near as even early Mark II and Mark III. Rule of cool, though. Rule of cool. Absolutely. And what's cooler than, like, aviators and a bike helmet with just, like, massive fucking, like, you know, thigh-sized biceps, itty-bitty little legs. So... The Thunder Warriors were very unbalanced in more ways than one, biologically, uh, logistically. But the first legion here is that template. Uh, the Astartes is a true army, and in their unity could withstand any onslaught. Comparatively, the Thunder Warriors were a mob, a storm of fury and blades that rolled over its foes. And I don't think the emphasis between the differences between the Thunder Warriors and even these proto-Astartes are really delved into as well as they could be a lot of the time. Even when they start out uh, just numbering around 10,000, where uh, the rest of the numeral legions are just a couple hundred each, uh, the very first time the first legion takes to the field in mass was a battle at Samarkand in 60, uh, excuse me, uh, 668 M30. So this is kind of their first uh, true trial by fire. It's not individual strength like a custodian or a thunder warrior. It's not genetic purity that, you know, by this point, the thunder warriors are kind of starting to fall apart a little bit. It's 
as a cohesive, workable army. So this is 10,000 first legionnaires uh, and contingents from four other legions. And again, they're very small at this point outside of the first legion, just a few hundred against about 200,000 slave soldiers from the king of Akkad. And fun fact, the king of Akkad was a real person. Uh, go check it out. It's a very interesting uh, Mesopotamian ruler and a whole lineage in history. It's a pretty neat little uh, sidebar. But uh, he has 200,000 of these essentially like gene forged techno barbarians, uh, the Udog Hole, whose blood was poison and whose strength was greater than 10 unenhanced warriors. Uh, were the terror of the Upper Asiatic Basin and a foe that had so far resisted the advance of the emperor's armies. So that's a pretty big deal if they're given the emperor's armies as a whole problems, because, I mean, those are the old 100, the Thunder Warriors, everything together. Uh, it takes them 10 hours after the start of the battle. Samarkand was in ruins, the Udag hull scattered and broken, and the great king of Akkad's head, a trophy on the belt of the newly appointed Grandmaster of the First Legion. This warrior, Hector Thrain, was lauded by the princes of Terra for his victory and granted the title Sinestra of the Emperor, the left hand of the warlord of Terra. And that's a big deal, because if Malkador <laughs> is the emperor's right hand, it's not a custodian, it's not a thunder warrior, it's not like another mysterious super psyker with a mysterious past, it's a first legionnaire. And that's a big deal. So I, I, I do love the, the build out of the early lore, right? So um, 668, M30, Samarkand, we have 10,000 proto Astartes or first legionnaires, right? I think we should probably distinguish that. So they're first legionnaires. Um, we actually have an engagement that predates that uh, by about, uh, I don't know, 65 years. So it's like a couple paragraphs back. Um, it's Antioch in 603 M30. And there were nine distinct hosts, right? Um, four separate companies that are 30 warriors each or less. So maximum 540. So these, both of these engagements predate any known um, unification war chronology that, that I'm aware of, right? So the dates that are that I'm aware of that are known would be like 790. That's the pacification of Luna. Um, obviously, that was the Sons of Horus with the First Legion, um, and a good a good amount of the Fourth Legion took place in that as well. Uh, and then you go like uh, the assault on the Tempest Galleries. So this is easily uh, 180 to 200 years. Uh, predating the Unification Wars lore that we know about, at least the, the timeline, um, which is, I think, really significant. Um, and we're also talking about a very small number of Astartes. So this sort of is the proof of principle, right? This is the proof of concept that they can work, um, that they're superior to the Thunder Warriors, 
Um, they're more restrained. They're more methodical. I mean, all the things that Jason just talked about. But I, I mean, it's great that we can do this because I think it's um, I mean, this is this is the rabbit hole, you know, that we go that we can continually go down, and uh, we you know we, we start to see how. I think Forge World and Black Library are building out not just the lore of what's in between a Space Marine and a Primarch. I mean, this is this is the continuation of the building out of the of of the prehistory of the lore, um, which has been alluded to, and you know, can, but I think is continuing to get uh, developed. Uh, as we get more of the early Siege of Terra stuff, uh, the Black Library novels, the and then these Black books are just build, they're building it out. I mean, this is the Techno Barbarian Empire, man, um, and it's 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 getting really deep. Uh, so I love that about this 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 uh, this section here. Um, yeah, I mean they're going up against Gene Forged Udug Hull, right? Slave soldiers of Akkad. Uh, yeah, I mean, all these places are—they're um, real and they're not real. You know, they're—they're they're parts of mythology from the Persian Empire uh, to you know the old Nordic Empire, um, which is great because that's—I mean—that's the whole—that's what uh, this genre does, right? It makes it uh, a powerful collective mythology that you can just you know you it's constantly evolving it's constantly relevant you can continue to build it out but in this instance i mean i think we see the very first examples of uh what will become the most powerful force in the galaxy right the legionis astartes uh just absolutely conquer any credible resistance on Terra, right? I mean, they just, they just, they just roll through in a way that I, I don't think the Thunder Warriors would have been capable of. Um, I don't think the Custodians had the numbers to do. Um, I think it's important to note that they did this alongside the Old 100. Uh, so the Old 100 is alluded to many times in Book Nine, which I think is awesome. Um, because they're they were gene forged along with the Astartes, but they weren't you know they weren't genetically modified in the same way. So they were the regiments, the human regiments that had been you know um, you know leveled up. I guess is the way to call it you know, but they weren't they weren't quite the same uh, order of magnitude. Uh, as a as an Astartes, but but yeah, I mean, I mean, I, this is so rich. I mean, there's so much lore that's in there, and whenever the Black Library starts putting in hard date times, like so, you get a date time stamp, you get a date time group. That is so relevant because, sorry, when Forge World or the Black Library does that, I mean, that just drives the lore. I mean, that's um, that's not just the quote-unquote unreliable narrator, right? This is this is being dictated as history. So we're getting date timestamps that are continuously pushing the lore back and that, you know, Black Library authors can 
they can they can plan off that they can they can sort of you know spin off of that you know and uh i just that's why i love this man I think it's so awesome to see where this is going so i don't know guys what do you think so i do know like we mentioned with the black library authors you know taking from the black books and stuff i know quite specifically from uh, lionel johnson lord of the first by uh, david geimer there was so much if you go back and forth between that novel and the black book that just uh, coincides with, with each other. Like I know Hector Thrain is uh, mentioned a time or two in the book. He's basically got a statue on the invincible reason, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, there, it's, this is, this is not a big secret, right? I mean, no, it's just these, you know, I used to call the Forge World guys like the Brain Trust, and I sort of did that, um, I think, sort of a little bit ironically, but unironically. Um, I really do think the people that are doing the background lore at Forge World um, have a special place in sort of uh, where... And it's an it's a, it's a conversation. I, yeah. I mean, I know that from going to the Weekender, you know. Um, you know, Dan Abnett will call up you know, one of the, the background lore writers at Forge World and be like, hey, man, <laughs> what if I did this? Would that really mess things up, you know? <laughs> but yeah, it, yeah, when I got the uh, the limited edition back earlier this year, it was effectively a, sort of like a small sneak preview of what to expect in book nine. Like they specifically call out units that we haven't seen before yet or things like that characters names I, th- I thought it was pretty cool and i don't know if it's just because that i hadn't followed other books like that in the past i don't know if it was similar things that happened with other legions or not but like i said my own little biases kind of saw that pretty directly in this one in this case yeah yeah absolutely i mean they i mean you know the folks at Black Black Library and Forge World um, have done a, a bang out job with this. So I, I I got a bit of a side tangent here, but one thing I've felt like I've noticed was somewhat lacking as far as story so far is when the Emperor decides to take off of Terra and go to space. Like we, I I don't know if I have not really seen anything that shows you know the first steps off of Terra since, you know, the Great Strife or Old Nida or anything like that. I don't know if there's anything out there that kind of speaks to it, but I feel like it's kind of a major gap that I would like to see filled in the future at least. Well, yeah, I mean, I think Jason and I have, and Patrick have talked about this a little bit. So, I mean, the Emperor first goes to Luna, Right, he meets with House Tyrannus. There's pledges that are oh, sorry, that's Mars. Pledges are made there. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> he goes to Mar- he goes to Luna and meets with the matriarchs of the Selenar. But I see, I, I kind of I want to see where the, where they write like the first group that takes off of Terra. I want to see you know what ship they landed in and oh fuck yeah, took. like I want to see that happen. I want to yeah. see that because we can assume. Yeah, like, how is a ship even built on Terra? Like, is it built directly on Terra? Is there some sort of 
shipyard that we don't know about that's currently circling Terra before, you know, the Great Crusade or post-unification? Did they find some ships that are lying around in some uh, barbarian's back lot? It's like, oh, maybe this will work. Fill it up with go juice. Pickers, 30K, you know? Yeah, I think they had to go to Jupiter. I think that was was the the Jovian shipyard. And I think they had to... uh, yeah, but you're, you're absolutely right, Jesse. I mean, I think a comprehensive timeline and chronology of sort of... I'll take a short story. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, also that. But yeah, no, I mean, yeah, the first steps out into the galaxy, right? Would it be... Uh, how, how are the... Uh, Jason, how are the expedition, expeditionary fleets numbered? Ooh, that is a good question. I know how... They're, what, 2,400 mainline fleets and over 20,000 secondaries. The numbers are just boggling to me. Like, where the hell did they get all those ships so quick? I mean, I guess they were just lying around on Mars, but... Mars, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the Martians had essentially spent most of old night just, like, hurling expedition yeah. fleets into the, you know, into the black. Seeing what comes back. Yeah, so it's like, ah, we'll hook up with you later. Good luck, (laughs) shove. And I mean, it kind of worked. Yeah. No, I'd say it did work. Just in the long game. That's still something, though. I'm a little, I wouldn't say salty, but I kind of want to hear more about because the Martians had all of the technology they could ever need. They had been like in full swing production since, you know, they'd gotten the Martian cult all together after the schism. And they had, they had Titans, they had night houses, they had just ships, shipyard after shipyard after shipyard. What did the emperor have other than navigators because uh, if you guys remember way, way back when, when we did, uh, when we did our episodes on like, you know, the Treaty of Olympus and, you know, between the Emperor and Mars, I asked then, and I still don't know, what did the Emperor have that would make it a good idea for Mars to ally with them instead of just squishing all of the Emperor's custodians with a bunch of Titans? Are we assuming that the dragon is already on Mars by this point? That's the thing. I'm trying to remember that timeline. Because that could have been a bargaining chip. It's a really good point, Pat. I mean, we also saw that the Emperor was able to like, heal a Titan or a Knight, rather. True. And the whole cult of the Omnissiah probably got enough believers. Ah, eh. uh, that crazy folklore. <laughs> But you're right, Jason. I mean, Mars is launching out Ark Explorator fleets into the void during old night, but they're like, yeah, we're not going to go to the planet next door. Yeah, fuck those people. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? They've got all the archaeotech. They've got all the stuff, right? There's the megawatt cult that the Emperor's, like, co-opted, cr- cranking out, like, proto-Stardies and Thunder Warriors, but Mars is just like, no. We're not going to visit our redneck cousins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those old, those, those, yeah, 
hillbillies. We're going to throw Titans out into the void and see if they come back. <laughs> much it better makes option. no sense. A much better option. Yeah. We got Titans just sitting around. We got ships. We don't have navigators, but, uh, you know. I mean, well, also at that point, you know, they could, they probably have, like in the 1930s and 40s movies, Mars has a giant telescope looking at Earth and saying, wow, they really fucked that planet up. Right. Don't There's go there. Be something better out there. Oh, hey, they refound paddleboat technology. Um, you know. Oh, too bad there's no ocean. Son yeah. of a bitch. That would, be, that would be a great story, though. You're absolutely right, man. Somebody needs to write, like, the story of why the, the cult did not go down to, to Earth, right? I mean, I know they sent, like, archaeotech raiding missions to go recover old... Um, tech and bring it back to Mars, but like no concerted effort. Like every time they went down, they were like, nope, don't want to stay here. No contact, please. <laughs> Keep your social distancing. Right? Yeah. I mean, if I was the Martians, what would the Earthlings have that I wanted? Besides maybe, I don't know, comparatively, do you think Earth had more resources available? It had more manpower. I mean, yes, yes, they can make their own their own own robots and things like that and and come close to uh, the men of iron. uh, But like they still need a body for a servitor, you know, a brain, a brain is still useful for a Thalax. Oh, maybe they thought uh, Terra was more or less desecrated because of the men of iron. Oh, good point. But I just mean, throwing out ideas there, Black Library. You, you can just yeah. credit me in the in the forward. That's fine. <laughs> you know, I'd I'd love it if they did like a full write up treaties of, you know, of here's what Mars gets, here's what the uh, what Terra Dude, that's, gets, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a terrific idea. Like I know Dave loves maps, but. In the next black book, don't give me a fold-out map. Give me a fold-out Treaty of Olympus. Oh, right, that'd be so good. <laughs> I demand or, um, to know the lawyers involved. <laughs> kind of similar to how they had the Council of Nikea and book. Uh, yeah, I was just exactly. going to say that how they had like you know how each Primarch voted yeah. and you know who was do, the main that points. with the Treaty of Olympus would be terrific. Mm. Definitely. But we're getting way off topic here. There is no topic at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Weren't we talking about, I don't know, Dark Angels, something? Eh. I, don't, I, don't know. I mean, the Dark Angels point. at this point, reading this book, they're so <sighs> ingrained with the origins of the Imperium outside of Terra that it's kind of hard not to go on so many tangents while talking about them because they got their grubby little fingers and everything. Yeah, I, I 100% agree, Jesse. I think the origin of the Dark Angels is the origin of the Imperium. Yeah, the it's, Space Marines. Yeah. Which is a kind of a big deal in the uh, in the Warhammer franchise. <laughs> yeah, for real. I mean, they were there from the very beginning, the Unification Wars. Yeah, the Conquest of the Galaxy. Um, yeah, I want to, I just, I want to know. I want to know where they went first. I think that'd be a great story because obviously they would have been the first launched out into space 
you know. Mm-hmm. Did we get that story in this? Have I just not read far enough, they like, kinda, along? Don't they kind of tut step around it? Like, they, they vaguely, you know, I, I, was, I was skimming the other day, and I think there's, like, a vague kind of mention. We'll get there. Yeah, but as far yeah, as the, we'll uh, yeah, the intro uh, paragraphs and stuff, they kind of go from kicking ass on Terra to kicking ass in space without really any uh, jump between the two. Don't look at the navigator behind the curtain, essentially. Should we do a uh, see you next time, kicking ass in space? Yeah. Sounds so, good. Uh, thank you all for listening. And uh, anybody got any plugs before we go? I'd like to thank our patrons. Yeah. We got some new ones since last time, so. <laughs> yeah, major shout out to, to all of our patrons, new and old, and thank you for sticking with us even through covid you know yeah and to thank uh our praetors alex self chris mack jacob dylan garner tree of woe joe from music city heresy luke rizzuto matthew boyce mr baldwick and sar luther our legion centurions andrew n angry boy john christensen m tanzer queen corswain scott lemay the original applesauce black label painting and finally our sergeants aaron maynard duncan emily o'hare Garrett Lowe, Mr. Sear, and Nick Gillen. Oh, and the Zoe. And what do I call myself? Thank you all again for your support. We greatly appreciate it. And if you'd like to become a patron, go over to patreon.com forward slash rr30k podcast. You can uh, find our exclusive Necromunda episodes. We have two out right now, hopefully a third here in the next uh, two or three weeks or so. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at RR30K Podcast. You can visit our website, RR30K.com, is where you can find our Battlefleet Heresy Compendium, which is a rule set that our guys, Austin and Steven, created for you to play Battlefleet Gothic in set in the Age of Darkness. You can join our Discord server, which will be in the show notes. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also follow us on Instagram at remembrancers underscore retreat. And that's all I got. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. And we'll definitely be back with more awesome Dark Angels early Imperium lore for you guys. Mm -hmm. See you guys later. Enjoy. Bye for now.